Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of State of the Art. I'm your host, Andrew Herman. If you've been following along with us, you know that this month's theme is environmental art, and we'll be continuing along today by speaking with artist Aviva Romani, whose creative journey began as a performance artist and has since developed to include a diverse discipline ranging from painting and singing to legal studies, um, a lot of really cool stuff in between there, all in a help to... Uh, all in an effort to help protected and threatened landscapes. So without further ado, please help me welcome Aviva. How are you doing today, Aviva? I'm doing great, and I'm delighted to be here with you, Andrew. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Thank you. We are we are coast to coast right now, by the way. This is always a fun way to do it. So uh, I, I wanted to kind of kick off with... Um, well, actually, you know what? Let's let's jump right into. We had a little conversation right before this, and I think it's something that um, is really important to explain to our guests. And uh, you know, one of the things as we got into this theme this month, we're kind of learning about the different aspects of environmental art. Um, and and you mentioned just a moment ago that there really is a pretty big distinction between um, eco art and environmental art. Can you can you kind of explain that for our listeners? Sure, I'd be delighted to. So. Um... I would argue that in the past, maybe three, well, maybe since Leonardo da Vinci, artists have been systematically funneled into a more and more passive relationship to the culture and to society. And that now includes our audience, where we have a lot of people doing things that are entertaining, pleasant, interesting, educational. And the audience basically sits there and takes it in however they want to take it in, and then they go on to their normal lives. The distinction between that kind of work, which I would include environmental art in, is that in ecological art, which is how I identify myself as an ecological artist, we look at all these environmental issues just the same way as a landscape painter might look at the landscape, but then we engage and we engage in the narrative of what the landscape is telling us, and we become personally, viscerally engaged when we see problems that we might be able to address with art, and that's precisely what I've done. And I just want to distinguish further that the idea that art is a form of resistance or art can be weaponized it's not entirely the whole story, because the other part of the story is that historically, art, culture, and the natural environment, including people, have not been separated, hmm. as we see the separation today. And to me, the fact that we have these separations is one more symptom of the causes of what I would call echo suicide. Um, so I'm curious, can you explain kind of that division a little bit more in your thought or rather, you know, at what point in time or what perspective those things were not divided? Well, the most obvious example is in many indigenous cultures. So for example, in some of the Plains Indian uh, Native American cultures, People gathered specific plants, specific grasses that were then used to make baskets, which had very intricate designs. 
And often those people would describe the designs as something that came to them in dreams. So it wasn't simply a word of mouth. Hmm. But the gathering of those grasses and other plants, such as sweetgrass, which is one of the more famous grasses that was collected because of the wonderful fragrance, also was a means of monitoring and controlling the ecosystem. So, for example, if the plants were gathered at a certain time of the year in a certain way, it could shade a riverbed. And that would determine the fish spawning. Hmm. And then that, in, in consequence, would create the opportunity for food for the community. It would provide a balance between species. For example, uh, Native Americans very often would clear an area in a woodland as part of this process. And as a consequence, it was a fire control. Hmm. Whereas uh, we've gone into the forest system with a lot of arrogance, presuming that we knew what we were doing. And one consequence is that we have uncontrolled burns Right. at this point. So all of this was integrated into the whole society, the whole culture. Everybody understood the implications. They didn't call it science. They didn't do um, quantitative monitoring of the effects, but they were able to live in their world in a way that was beautiful and productive and recognized our interdependence with all other species. Hmm. That's what we've lost. And do you, uh, I mean, I think I could probably hazard a guess as to your answer based on based on that information, but I am curious, um, you know, for you personally, does this work sort of satisfy you? Do you break, do you see a difference kind of in the um, sort of creative satisfaction you get out of this as, as opposed to sort of the um, activism or, you know, the environmental protection part of this? Well, it's hard to separate these things. Right. I can go on a march, and that's pure activism, I would say. When I do my own work, I'm analyzing the situation in a far more complex way with much more depth, so that each decision that I make to go forward with an idea integrates a lot of different kinds of thinking. So that might include biology, it might include physics, it might include music. It might include the visual imagery. It might include metaphor. But at a certain point, for me, all these directions merge into one direction. And then that's my way forward. Hmm. Well, well, I'd like to talk to you about um, one specific piece because you've um, you've had a very successful career and there's a lot of stuff we could get into that's very interesting to me. But, um, you know, on the more recent side, there's this ongoing project, the, the Blue Tree Symphony. And this is a 
you know, just in doing research, I mean, this is a very exciting project. This is what you want to find when you dig into an artist's work, because it really touches on uh, activism. Obviously, there's a huge artistic and creative component. There's a community component to this. Um, There's legal studies all wrapped into this one massive undertaking. Uh, And basically, to, to summarize it for our listeners, although I'm sure you'll do a much better job, Um, You're using sort of creativity in these uh, sites that you're concerned about um, to use copyright law to sort of protect these areas from developers. Um, Can you can you kind of give us maybe a little better description and sort of the background, how you started with this piece? Sure. Uh, Copyright law is something that has always interested me uh, since I would say the mid-70s, because it touches on the whole idea of what is ownership and what is value to the society and how do we create regulations for that that are fair to everybody. That was the time of appropriation art, which I always thought was incredibly unfair. And since then, there have been a number of lawsuits, for example, against Jeff Koons, where artists took the work of somebody else and said, oh, this is mine, and it's going to cost you $5 million. There you are. And that has since been contested quite a bit. But it goes into the question of what is uh, what we would term public good. There's a distinction between public good and common good. And the distinction is that when we speak legally about public good, what we're really talking about is economic value. And I would argue that because of our dire environmental circumstances today, we have to reassess what we mean when we talk about economic value. It's been very interesting to me to learn about the work you guys are doing, because I I think that's part of your own interest. Now, the distinction between public good and common good is that in common good, we are agreeing on certain ethical values. And again, this is something that is being reassessed and reinvented by, I would say, the foremost thinkers of our times. We seem to have gotten stuck in the Industrial Revolution intellectually, where we still think that we can segregate people by relatively siloed functions and disengage them from the results of our labor or their labor, and it's all going to be fine. And what we now have is a culture that presumes that we can extract indefinitely from habitat, from land, and from people, and that's going to work. And as we all know, yeah, it does work for the 1%. Right. They're not having a problem at all. So how I got involved in this particular project was that I was going along dealing with climate. But the nagging problem was that we could not seem to stop fossil fuel extractions and the infrastructure that people were creating to support that economy. Then in early 2015, a small group of activists who were working on fracking in New York State started to reach out and try to find an artist who could build 
on an example from Peter von Tiesenhausen, a sculptor in Alberta, Canada. And what Peter had done was he copyrighted his entire ranch. Hmm. And when the corporations came onto the property, he said, oh, you, you can talk to me for a few hundred dollars an hour, but you can't touch my ranch because it is copyrighted. Now, for some reason, they were willing to back off, and it was never tested in court. So there were two questions. One was, is there a way to apply this idea in which copyright law might overlap with eminent domain law, which is how we term it in this country, which allows corporations to take private property under the auspices of ostensible public good when actually the effect is to take private property for private gain. Hmm. And just legally, the, the problem with that from an originalist point of view, if you're interpreting the law, is that originally... Eminent domain was established to protect the sacred home. So how are we protecting the sacred home if we're giving people's homes away to fossil fuel corporations so that they can make more money than God? Hmm. So when these activists and I connected, they showed me the maps of where the Constitution natural gas pipeline was supposed to cross northern New York State. And when I took a look at that map, I thought, well, huh, that would be, if I could use it, the basis for an installation that would be hundreds of miles long. Wouldn't that be fascinating? And they looked to me like the basis for a musical score. Hmm. So each length of pipeline became a measure in the symphony that I developed out of that. Then the next problem, after I'd conceived of the basic structure of the project, was to clarify what is called the legal theory. Under what rubric would I say that they can't take this land? So there are a number of things I had to tick off. I could not ask people to participate whose land had already been condemned because if they participated, they could be thrown in jail, which mm. seems fair, but that's the way it is. Right. So the first task was to find landowners who had not been condemned and were willing to participate because I had to have their permission to go on private land. The second was to clarify a number of basic legal ideas. How would a project like this be distinguished from site-specific art? In site-specific art, what the courts have argued is that if, for example, you have a sculpture that frames the sunset and the dawn, you can always pick it up. There are infinite numbers of sunsets and dawns, and you can move it to some other location. Right. So I had to create... A, an artwork that could not be moved. So that was a huge problem. 
Right. The second huge problem that my copyright lawyer warned me of immediately was I had to create standing so that when we went into a courtroom, we could argue that this work was significant enough, whether or not it had been shown in museums, to be protected by copyright law. And the way to establish that, this was Patrick Riley, was to win the case in the court of public opinion Hmm. before we stepped foot into the courtroom. So one of my big tasks, especially in the beginning of this project, was to make sure that there were films, there were plenty of articles, there were plenty of interviews, as we're having right now. And all of this creates a larger and larger platform to argue for the standing. Does, does that, just so I understand correctly, I mean, is, is that pretty much the idea of creative uniqueness, that, that this is um, truly a, a one-off piece? Well, that's an interesting question because uh, you are getting at one of the most interesting questions debated in contemporary art. How important is it to be original? Hmm. But when we did a mock trial last year at the Cardozo School of Law to test the theoretical application of these ideas, our witness for the art world was Ben Davis, an arts writer. And the way he defined the value was that there were a number of artists who might be considered at the forefront of this kind of thinking. One, for example, might be Mel Chin, and this is a dialogue that is current at the front end, cutting edge of art. Where does law fall into any kind of a cultural discussion of the value of art? So he was assessing the importance on the basis of how much had it entered the discourse. And we entered the discourse by establishing our standing. And he added to it, of course, by his testimony. And in fact, April Neubauer, the justice who adjudicated the mock trial, said that it was his testimony that had swayed her to impose an injunction on the corporation. Hmm. Okay. So, uh, so as of yet, and and how long? What's the time scale that uh, of this project so far? We started working on this in 2015. The first thing we did was we met with lawyers and discussed what were some of the legal issues we had to take into account, specifically case law. For example, there was a case where someone tried to copyright a garden. Hmm. And the courts decided, no, that's too ephemeral. So Hmm. that approach wouldn't work. This was where we uh, got involved with the discussion around site-specific art. So we're not going to go there. We have to make sure it is uh, integrated with the habitat. So all of that allowed me to refine my ideas about how we were going to implement the project. By June 21st of that year in 2015, we had found our first landowner and we did our first installation, one third of a mile being the first 
measure of the whole symphony. And that was completed in about two days with about 10 participants painting individual trees, each one of which represented a note in the symphony. Hmm. So, so the so the legal constructs, it seems like, if I'm understanding correctly, then basically kind of gave you your creative constraints. I mean, the legal constructs were the problems to be solved creatively. Is that safe to say? I don't think so. Okay. I, I think what drove me was the idea that I could create an installation that was hundreds of miles long. Hmm. That's just a really unbelievable idea. And that if I looked at that installation aerially, that it would correspond to music. And that on the ground, when people performed the process of painting, they would have this experience of a very intimate relationship with one tree at a time. They would smell the environment. They would hear the animals, they would see the changes in the light as the day progressed, and they would also see the way that the paint on each tree allowed the uh, trunk, the bark, to be seen translucently through the color of the blue. Hmm. And that eventually it was going to grow moss because it was casein. It was ultramarine blue, which is non-toxic, mixed with buttermilk, which creates one of the more uh, enduring paint forms, but also buttermilk is how Japanese gardeners grow moss. Hmm. And this this was sort of a, a paint of your design? Where, where did you kind of get this idea of buttermilk mixed with this ultramarine? Well, casein is ancient. It's as old as encaustic paint. It's thousands of years old. It's basically just pigment mixed with milk. Hmm. The distinction here was that because we were painting on an outdoor surface, the buttermilk, because it had this history in Japan, might also support the growing of moss. So this idea of who is the audience for this, who are the participants, it breaks down some boundaries of who in fact we perform for. We're not necessarily performing for a paying audience here. Right. We're, pay, we're paying attention to the animals that participate in this habitat. We're paying attention to the plants that allow us to have a clean watershed. So who are those people that are... What are those communities that are participating in the project and becoming part of our audience? Yeah. So, so I'm curious, what is, and this is something that, you know, this is one of those fun art questions that there's never necessarily a real or a right or a wrong answer to, um, but it is sort of a personal question. I'm curious for you, um, I mean, this is obviously a massive undertaking. This project is is years long. The uh, physical scale of this is, as you said, miles and miles of uh, of landscape that you're trying to protect. Um, 
the sort of source material covers legal theory, uh, classical music and painting. So, you know, there's sort of all these different aspects. What for you is the most creative part of this? Where does the art live for you in this entire process? Well, that's hard for me to answer because it's kind of like, um, who's your favorite child? Um, honestly, my most favorite part is whatever I'm struggling with at the moment. Right now, I'm trying to apply geographic information system science, which is a mapping process, to look at the layering and relationships between where we've implemented the measures of the symphony and how the existing fracking or the existing natural gas pipelines have impacted the environment? What are the new pictures of landscape that are emerging once we start layering the data? Hmm. This kind of work, as you said, requires a lot of research. But the research is not exactly the same as the kind of research a scientist might do, because in most cases, scientists are looking for quantitative data Sure. And I'm not even looking for qualitative data here. What I'm looking for is what is the invisible picture that might emerge from the research that would clarify some of the questions I have. The most fundamental question I have is, are we going to survive? What is the role of art in preventing eco-suicide? And I'm not even talking about eco-side. I'm talking about eco-suicide. Can you dig into that term a little bit more? I'm curious. I mean, this is something obviously you feel very strongly about. Yeah, it is. And I used it in the mock trial. When we talk about ecocide, well, first of all, we have to take my premise seriously, which is that, in fact, we are destroying our habitat at unprecedented rates. It's affecting every aspect of life on Earth. Whales are dying of plastic in their stomach. People are dying of asthma, on and on and on. Uh, but when we t- use the term ecocide, the implication is that someone else, someplace else, is perpetrating these catastrophes. If we use the term suicide, then we have to consider that we are doing it to ourselves. Mm. It's not the heroin addict out there who is self-medicating inappropriately. It's us. That we are addicted to extraction, to overconsumption, to so many isms, to so many tropes of thinking that are really destroying us. Mm. And what do you think, I mean, if that's true, and, uh, you know, I'll leave it up to the listener to to agree or disagree, but if that's true, where do you think art's role in the solution to that lies? I mean, what is, you know, one of the things that I find so interesting about eco-art is that it's tackling a topic that 
feels so daunting for everybody involved. I mean, you hear scientists talk about it the same way as people who are terrified on the street as as artists do, that this is just this enormous monolithic problem. Um, and, you know, I think everybody would concede monolithic problems like that require sort of a, a multi-tiered approach from many different angles. And I'm kind of curious what you think the sort of artist's unique perspective on this problem is that can really move solutions. Well, let me answer that from two different directions. First of all, as you may know, or some of your listeners may know, in the 70s, there was a movement called conceptual art, in which artists said, hey, you know, the idea itself is the aesthetic. Hmm. So it's not a big surprise that many artists, including myself, moved from that point of view to actually doing research to real problem solving. And I know you're going to relate to this as a tech person, that one of the influences in my own work from the mid-60s was Boolean thinking, Hmm. where you just look at a problem And he said, well, if, and, or, then, and you just keep going right? infinitely with that. That's a really different approach to problem solving than, oh, my God, the sky is falling. I am falling through the earth, and it's hopeless because I've learned how to be helpless. Hmm. That's the end of the whole story. Well, it's not the end of the whole story if you're approaching problems as information technology. Hmm. One of the things that developed in my own work was something I call trigger point theory, which was that you can identify rules of how agents interact with each other and develop a model out of that study, that approach that can actually solve problems predictably. So just one of those six rules is that you just keep playing with the idea. Hmm. That's not that different than Boolean thinking. You just keep trying. Let's do this. Let's do that. Let's see where it takes us. Now, that is a cultural premise. A lot of the legal aspects of what I'm doing Reference back to earth rights with the idea that if we don't give forests and trees and animals some legal protection, we have no protection for ourselves. That is also a cultural concept. Hmm. The part that we have been disassociated from is when we talk about public good and compare it to common good, we have been taught to presume that we can leave out the cultural part. But the cultural part is precisely what allows us to survive. Hmm. It is precisely what allows us to get over divisiveness, for example, because most of us can agree on what beauty is. Hmm. Most of us can agree that we want peace. These, again, are cultural concepts, and these are the nuts and bolts of what makes art in any culture. So when we talk about 
the legal implications of putting together copyright law and redefining a new aspect of copyright law that would include habitat, eminent domain, and earth rights, we're going to the heart of what is the common good. What must we value today? And it cannot simply be private gain for a small number of people. It simply doesn't work. And as long as we're willing to accept that premise, we are committing eco-suicide. So in your particular case, um, if I understand correctly, this has not this has not yet played out in in an actual public court, right? This is you've tested this in a mock trial, is that right? Correct. So, um, what is your kind of confidence level, and how would you like to see this play out over time? Um, you know, kind of stepping out uh, from one particular. Uh, sort of creative experiment into other artists taking this and using this as real sort of legal activism? Where where do you kind of see this evolving? Well, there are two big issues. One is the election. Sure. And the other is dark money. The reason that activist lawyers have not glommed onto this is that there's not enough case law existing to protect the lawyers hmm. from conservative judges that would decide that it's frivolous and then award corporations whatever damages they want to assess with no limits whatsoever to completely destroy people's careers, their families' lives, anything they can destroy so that they can carry on as they have. The funding for that approach is dark money, money that we cannot track or it's very hard to track that will fund a lawyer to go after other lawyers, activists, lawyers, purely to defend the profit of these huge corporations for a very small number of people. The other side is, who have we elected? Who are we electing? What kind of power are we giving the people who are being elected? For example, the Federal Energy Regulatory Committee, which oversees the establishment of new natural gas pipelines or expanded natural gas pipelines, those are people appointed by the same corporations that are pressing for these kinds of advantages and privileges. We have another election coming up. There's a lot of talk about the election now. We have to see how all these things fit together. And that brings me back to Patrick's point that this has to be won in the court of public opinion. We have to, in effect, educate people to a different point of view And as I continue to establish the standing and continue to develop the project in various forms, that becomes a side effect, a Mm. byproduct of my work. It's not something I'm trying to directly address. I'm not trying to be an educator here. And I'm certainly not trying to be a politician. 
but I have a very clear idea of how these parts might fit together, and I'm very driven to see them realized. Hmm. And what is what is the general reaction from uh, from these private landowners who are uh, who presumably you're finding, but are already kind of caught up in this by the time they hear from you? I would assume. Say that their reaction is very complicated, honestly. Yeah. The people who have participated in implementing these measures of the symphony describe feeling that they gained a lot of solace from the experience. Mm. They were able to have these relationships with their trees. It's something that people would laugh, a lot of people would laugh at that these are literally tree huggers. <laughs> sure. And are. You have to hug the tree in order to paint it or paint with it. Uh, there's tremendous grief when the corporations roll right over them mm. and destroy their trees. And that's really hard for me to see and for me to take. I visited a site in Virginia last spring that was just a tree massacre. Mm. And the sense of defeat and hurt from the community that had been engaged in the Blue Tree Symphony and then saw their trees destroyed was just completely overwhelming. Hmm. Completely. Um, I think that uh, there are a number of places that are considering doing another measure of the Blue Tree Symphony and they're torn because they want to do something, they understand the value of doing something, but most people are feeling, at this point, extremely intimidated by the corporations and their corporate lawyers and the present political system. And it's a catch-22, because as long as people are so intimidated that they can't act, the corporations win. Mm. Fossil fuels win. We continue to be forced into colluding with our own eco-suicide. Have you found their at any point being sort of this dissonance and this is maybe I'm completely wrong on this, but I'm curious your perspective because I, so I'm actually from Pennsylvania and um, I have a large part of family in sort of Northeastern Pennsylvania um, where this issue hit really hard, the, the fracking issue and people, um, you know, it, in in my first person experience, it actually ranged from people almost sort of trying to get control of this land to sell off to fracking companies. Um, you know, it ranged from that all the way to people again, you know, literally going back to the tree huggers stuff, chaining themselves to trees and stuff like that. But I'm curious, uh, you know, I have found that in some of these locations, you have this interesting culture of people who are really tied to their landscape and very dedicated, you know, they would consider themselves to be outdoorsy people, people who think ecologically, but who are also politically aligned with, um, you know, a, a direction that's probably not supporting um, those ecological viewpoints. Have you encountered that at all? Have you, have you found these oh, people yeah. that. Yeah. Um, where I did some of the painting in Virginia I was told that there was a Ku Klux Klan camp right down the road. Whew. 
But what was so interesting to me, and I didn't actually talk with people about this, but I heard about it secondhand, was that those same people still felt very connected to their land. Yeah. Cared a lot about their trees and wanted to protect them. And it's my hope, and maybe I'm being Pollyanna about this, that as we continue to go forward, our shared values will overcome some of this horrible divisiveness that we're encountering. But it's a big problem. Yeah. That people tend to disassociate and fragment themselves from the consequences of their thinking without thinking it through. Hmm. And so when you, when, when you say that there is uh, kind of this educational component in this need to um, sort of focus on winning this battle in the court of public opinion, what are sort of the linchpin issues that you try to focus on to, you know, since obviously some of this can tap into a direction that isn't going to help you, um, whether it's politically or otherwise, what are the linchpin issues that you find do bring people together that are easy to kind of get people to to understand what you're trying to do? Well, I'm not sure I think like that. Okay. I think like an artist Hmm. and as an artist i look at the systems again as though it were a landscape i were studying to do a conventional painting a watercolor painting or an oil painting of the landscape what i was taught as a young art student was look at a chaotic landscape and find the narrative in That was my task as an artist, observing nature. It's still my task. Mm. I believe very much in a collective unconscious, that we all somehow filter the same kinds of ideas and come out with something that makes some kind of common sense. So when I work on the Blue Tree Symphony, what I find is that people respond intuitively to the ideas I'm trying to deal with. Mm. I don't need to explain the distinction between public good and common good or get into an argument with them about the current administration. All I have to do is explain how the symphony works, how law might support the protection of that art as something they are part of in their community and the trees they love. That's a much simpler task Hmm. than what you're thinking about. Right. The task you're thinking about is truly your task. Hmm. When you ask me questions, you are interpreting, you are creating the educational structure for your listeners to think this through for themselves. If I do my job, it's relatively simple for you to do your job. Right. The next big job is your audience putting the pieces together and seeing how the dots connect in some way that is different than echo suicide. Hmm. Yeah. How, uh, how, 
how do you how are people interacting with this? How are people coming into contact with this project? At this point, there's been so much interest in the project, either in films or in articles or word of mouth in the activist community that they're simply coming across it, just as you came across my work by just Googling environmental art. Right. So they look at this and they say, well, we've tried everything else. What do we have to lose if we look into this? It's a relatively minimal investment to engage. It's maybe $20 of raw pigment, powdered pigment, and buttermilk and a few brushes, uh, organizing a handful of people, taking a good look at the maps, and spending a day out in nature inhaling the smells of the forest. Right. How much simpler can you get? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. I mean, it's it's funny. Like I said, growing up in uh, in Pennsylvania, that's definitely a theme that resonates with me. Um, but uh, yeah, this is this this is um, very interesting work. I, I I'm curious. Um, is it important to you? You know, this sort of even just from a, a creative perspective with you know the tying the actual painting into this sort of outdoors experience into um a symphony right there's a musical component to this um and that's actually that's that's where you started as an artist right was in music um i started simultaneously from a lot of different directions i had a lot of conventional painting training as a young person i had a lot of conventional music training dance training, and so on. It came together, and I began my career as a performance artist because it was a way to put it all together in one place. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I mean, that notion of putting it all together in one place seems like it's sort of a core value to your work. Why is this interdisciplinary approach so important to you? Well, again, I might be Pollyanna about this. <laughs> I think that if we break down arbitrary boundaries if we allow people to break out of arbitrary silos we have a hope for empathy with the other in this case we need empathy not just with other political constituencies but other species we need to see how we are interdependent with trees we need to understand viscerally that water requires trees, that we require water. If we don't have water, we're going to be in hard shape. And that's a real danger currently. Right. I'm not sure I answered your question. <laughs> uh, well, let me ask it again, because, um, I mean, I think that's a great answer, but uh, I'm curious, just from a purely, um, from a purely creative perspective, what is interesting to you about sort of bringing these multiple, um, multiple creative disciplines together? Well, I think one of the things that you asked me about was the symphonic process itself. Yeah. And what I did was I divided the symphony into 
five durational segments. So the event in Peekskill, where we did the first measure, I consider the overture. And in any symphonic overture, you want to have all the elements that you're going to develop later. So that would include the legal thinking, the actual painting, the performance, the documentation, the political implications. The first movement is really ongoing. The first movement is when you start developing these themes. And in that case, the themes were really simple. It was just painting the measures across the continent. Hmm. So we now have individual trees that represent a Greek chorus in Washington State. And we have full measures in Canada and a number of other states, New York, Virginia, West Virginia, the second movement was specifically about the Newtown Creek um, waste site, which is a toxic waste site, which is one of the worst in the world. And in my research on that and the work that was developed from it, I was afraid that that would be the whole continent if mm. we could get a handle on this. And in both the first movement and the second movement, I was taking uh, geolocated GPS sites for the trees and for some of the contamination and transposing it into musical notation. In the third movement, the issue was how we were going to develop the legal framework. So we took or I took the text that was generated by the research and began to organize it into some sort of an independent structure, which is really what culminated with the mock trial. The coda for the symphony actually has two parts. One was the 2016 election, hmm. which generated a separate piece of uh, text, narrative about legal issues and sound in a series of layers. And the second part of the code is going to be the next election. And I'm hoping that by then I can develop a full-fledged opera about the conflict between eco-suicide and the trees. Hmm. Beautiful. It's uh this is such an interesting um, piece piece of art that uh, we will definitely be following along. And and as you mentioned, you're right that you know our job is to uh, share this information out and try to get people interested and curious about these ideas. And um, hopefully, we have in some small part been able to do that. And we, you know, I'm I'm super happy to share this work with with our listeners. And I hope that um, that people continue to pay attention where. Uh, you know, for people who are kind of invested in following along with this project or even just with you and your work, where can people find you? I invite you to visit my website, which is www. You can either tap in Aviva Romani or ghostnets.com. That's G-H-O-S-T-N-E-T-S. And then go to the project section in the website. And you'll be taken to the Blue Tree Symphony, 
which also gives you a couple more links. And I would be very delighted to have you all join us. Thank you so much, Andrew, for a wonderful interview. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And thank you, all your listeners, for paying attention. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. And uh, but before I let you go, I so we usually do rapid fire questions at the end of an interview that are just kind of getting to know you questions. And it doesn't feel quite appropriate after a conversation about echo suicide to be asking you about pet peeves <laughs> and things like that. But um, but I do have a couple of kind of just little personal questions that I'm curious if you would mind answering. Uh, Please, yeah, I'll so, do my best. <laughs> so so. Uh, one of the things that I'm always um, curious about with experienced artists is what advice would you have for young artists who are kind of at the beginning of their journey trying to figure out um, how to how to make waves in the art world? Well, as you know, the conventional wisdom is do what you love, but that doesn't necessarily pay the bills. <laughs> so I would suggest that you be very thoughtful about a plan B strategy to keep yourself going and take care of yourself and be very self-disciplined about self-care as you move along. Because if you're truly doing what you love, you can easily burn yourself out, hmm. especially if you're working two jobs. Yeah. Yep. That's, I, I love that piece of advice. Um, what about for you on a day-to-day basis? Is there any words of wisdom that you kind of consistently find yourself falling back to? Yeah, there is. I find it very difficult to step back from my personal sense of urgency. I have to use some brute force to trust the universe and take time for a few meditation breaks and believe that all my effort is really going to amount to a hill of beans. <laughs> yeah. That, that's funny. Cause that, actually the last question I was going to ask you is uh, when you're dealing with such heavy work, what is, what is a perfect day away from that work look like? We all need to take a break sometimes. Well, ironically, I think my answer is not going to be a good answer. <laughs> but this past weekend was the uh, green burial of a close friend of mine, Carolee Schneeman, a well-known artist. Hmm. And the day was the very emotionally moving. She did a very beautifully planned ceremony. Uh, an experience for us all. It was out in the woods in upstate New York, and there was a lovely reception afterwards. And all her closest friends and colleagues were there, 200 people. Um, and afterwards, I took some of the photographs that I had shot and loaded them on Facebook. And so many people responded about the beauty that I had had a chance to witness there and, and share with everybody. So I know that the way we're supposed to rejuvenate ourselves is to go off someplace all by ourselves. But I found that experience, although it was also very emotionally draining, incredibly inspiring and incredibly rejuvenating for me. Hmm. Yeah, I think, uh, uh, that thank you for sharing that story that's beautiful and i love uh 
I love any challenge to simple notions. You know, I think that there's uh, we live in an era of sort of armchair psychology and people thinking they they know what's best for everyone or um, every every sort of moment. And uh, it's different for everyone. You know, we all have to find those moments that give us that that uh, refresh. And I will remind you, I'm sure you know this very well, that the origin of IT and information uh, thinking was partly from Maxwell's demon, that thought experiment from physics, which really amounted to, if you have the right information, you can change the whole system. Hmm. You don't change the content but you change the orientation yeah well that's beautiful i love that as a a closing thought thank you so much for sharing that thank you andrew it was delightful to spend the morning with you and and you as well aviva i am so happy to be able to share you with our listeners and uh i wish you nothing but the best ongoing in your in your uphill battle as an eco artist thank you likewise As always, listeners, thank you for tuning in to this episode of State of the Art. And uh, if you like what we're doing here at State of the Art, or if you like this episode, please rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Five-star reviews are always great. That's the most helpful thing you can do to help us, to help us grow, and to find other awesome listeners that like the same things you do. So thank you so much again, and I hope you tune in next week for another episode of State of the Art.